following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, we are continuing our study in the life of David. I appreciate very much the opportunity that you allowed me and Lisa and Matthew to get away last weekend to celebrate the engagement of our oldest son and to be with his fiance and her family and to know that on Sunday morning, not only did I not have to work, uh, I knew that this pulpit was well cared for with Jason Suddeth here. Uh, and that is a blessing, if you don't realize it, to this church, uh, of the men that we have available uh, to step forward and to proclaim uh, the gospel message. And through a tough section uh, there that I, that I gave to Jason, I'm not sure the next time he'll ever preach. Uh, on that. I'm going to have to give him John 3.16 uh, next time to woo him back in. Um, but it is uh, good to be uh, with the Lord through his word. And so we come again today now uh, with David again. And we're going to deal with something that for some of you uh, may stir within you uh, a deep emotion. That we're going to talk about grief. And we're going to talk about the loss of a loved one. For David, in this story, loses the person most dear to him, his best friend, Jonathan. And so he, he grieves. He works through that, and I'm so thankful that he works through that in a public fashion to give us some insights into what does it mean to lose someone that we love, to love so deeply that it hurts. To have a depth of relationship that when that relationship ends, it matters. That there's nothing surface or light or fluffy about David's love for his best friend, Jonathan. And when Jonathan was killed and his body desecrated, David was grieved at heart. And so we come to this passage this morning and ask that the Lord would guide and direct us. So let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for your word preserved. We thank you for your word proclaimed and your word received. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully today. Change our lives. Not because of the speaker, not because of the place where we are, but because the God of the universe speaks. To Christ be the glory. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 31. And then moving into 2 Samuel chapter 1. It is really one historic narrative uh, split into these two books. But this is the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer uh, could not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. 
And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the gospel, the good news, to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And then when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tarmesk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now we begin in chapter 2 with with David hearing the news from an Amalekite slave, and I'm not going to unpack that uh, full section. We'll talk about it a little bit there. But David uh, hears uh, the news of Saul's death and of the death of Jonathan, his best friend. And we pick up in verse 11. And after receiving the news, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then picking up in verse 17. And David lamented with, his, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said... Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For theirs the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. There's so much that we can't cover in this passage. So I'll start with just a couple of the things that we're not going to cover. It's a nice way of doing it, isn't it? Just quickly, verse 8, it speaks of this group of people, or verse 11, Jabesh Gilead. And if you go back to 1 Kings 11, you'll notice that the people of Jabesh Gilead were saved from the Philistines by Saul. 
And so it was their way of honoring the king, even an unfaithful king, to go at great risk to themselves, to travel 10 or 11 miles from where they were to where Saul was hung and undignified and decaying upon a wall in the heat of the day in the ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean sun. And they took his body and they honored him. We're not going to talk a lot at all about the Amalekite servant who came and he gave the news to David and David, when pressing him, ex- exposed a lie of this man didn't kill Saul. It is, isn't a contradiction of how Saul died in chapter 31 and how he said he died in chapter 1. But this Amalekite slave, intending, as it were, uh, to find favor in David's eyes, had been out on the field of battle after, uh, as it was the custom of the day, found Saul dead, took his crown and the armband of his royalty, And took it back to David and came and was hoping to gain something from David. And what he gained from David was justice for touching the Lord's anointed. What we're going to deal with today is how do we deal with sorrow and loss. For the fact of the matter is, if you haven't already experienced it, you will. I I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, That's just a human reality. That we're going to have to deal with the loss, loss of a loved one, loss of someone dear to us at some point in our lives. And so the first thing that I want us to to gather together out of this passage is a principle. And here's the principle that I want you to get as we start out. The deeper you love, the more profound the loss. The deeper you love, the more profound the loss. David and Jonathan had a deep and a profound relationship. Not an inappropriate relationship as some modern writers would try to use and to turn for an agenda, but a deep and a profound relationship uh, so much so that David, in honoring his best friend, said, you were beautiful. To me, the words uh, that he said, I'm distressed for you, my brother. You can hear it in the words. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. Wouldn't you love to use that language in your marriages? In your relationship with your children? In a best friend To be able to look at them, and not in a eulogy, but in the days that they're still alive. To be able to look at them and go, your love for me is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It is more than I ever expected or dreamed. And I've been blessed to be in relationship with you. That the depth of love, the depth of the connectedness, the depth of it also then leads to a depth of loss. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote in his great book, The Four Loves, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love 
is to be vulnerable. Folks, that's just the reality of life. And that is a principle that is not only a biblical principle, it is a human principle. And so you have a choice that you have to make. You can take your heart, and as some of you have, uh, you can lock it away. You, you can allow it not to be penetrable. You, you can be in relationship with one, someone, but not vulnerable to them. You can have a, a marriage that lasts a long time, but never once uh, give yourself to that person. You can't have it any other way because you're terrified that you know the principle is true. If you love then you have the opportunity to be deeply wounded when that love ends, when that relationship ends. I wonder if it would help in marriage counseling if I started out something like this. Hey, young man, you want to marry this woman? Here's what it's like. You're going to give your heart to someone in love so deeply that when she leaves, a part of you is gone. Little lady... You're going to give your heart and your soul to a man who if he rejects you and walks away from you, you will be devastated. So where did you want to go with this conversation? Oh, I just wanted to have sex and not feel guilty. Well, let's, uh, let's raise the bar a little. Let's say this. Loving anyone. The moment if you uh, have Uh, have had the experience of having a child. The moment you see that child, you know you're done. You realize that at that moment, somehow, even the depth of your happiness is tied to them. Your heart can be wrung out. So the principle begins this way. The deeper the love, the more profound the loss. So... Second thought, when loss occurs, and it will, when loss occurs, and it will, it reveals something about your heart. It reveals something about you. Loss reveals our hearts more profoundly than anything else in the world. Again, I go back to Lewis in a different book, The Problem of Pain, and he writes this, pain insists on being attended to. Would you agree with that statement? Pain insists on being attended to. You have to deal with it. You have to somehow understand it. For he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, before you think that it's just C.S. Lewis writing in his academic office, that's C.S. Lewis writing about the death of his beloved wife to cancer. Of going, I have to now deal with this. Pain has to be dealt with. It has to be attended to. You see, the story of Saul and Jonathan presses on us hard. It presses on us with incredible questions. It may be a little bit easier for us to come to grips with the death of Saul. Saul was under the judgment of God. Saul had rejected God. And God said, Saul, I'm going to rip and tear the kingdom from you. And so there's a sense with us, maybe emotionally, we can get around that and go, ah. But then Jonathan, what a kingly one. What a godly young man. What a good person. He would have been a great king. 
He would have been a great friend to David. Maybe he could have averted David from making some of the stupid choices that David made if Jonathan had still been there. Maybe. And we we wrestle at this moment when we see the death of Saul and we see the death of Jonathan and we see the way in which they were treated of being hung on a wall, of a good news being spread throughout all all of Philistia. And they would have gone, see how Agag has won. See how these men are now dead. See how we've de- defeated Yahweh. See all of this. And we look at Jonathan when he go, why? Why? The what ifs come out. And it's the same way when we experience the loss of a Jonathan in our lives. When we experience the loss of someone profound in our lives, it exposes our hearts. Those questions rush out of us. They fly thick and they fly furiously. Why? What if? God, what if you could have done it differently? God, are you still good? God, how is this a part of your good plan? God, how in the world? How can you say that you're a good God? How can you be sovereign? How is it that evil hasn't won at this moment? God, what are you up to? Our hearts are exposed. Our questions reveal something about us. I'm not saying... Don't ask questions. I'm saying as the questions start to roll, as the things start to flow out of your heart, uh, notice them. Because oftentimes what they do is they expose us as wonderful 21st century Western people who demand that we get all the answers. We don't like not knowing. We believe that God owes us something in this. But David didn't approach it that way. You see, David looked, and he just grieved. He didn't go, why God? He grieved. And he honored both Jonathan and the Lord, even in his grief. But notice what he does, and I want to make sure you get this. David's grief rests within God's plan. And it rests upon the full assurance that God's plan has not been thwarted. For he truly grieves. Don't impugn upon David the callousness of a lack of emotion that we have in our culture today. David grieved. He wept. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But he also fully trusted. It's a fascinating thing, and it struck me in my preparation for this sermon. David, in the writing of all of the worship uh, songs and the psalms that he wrote, he had incredible theological accurateness. Accuracy. In his grieving, he had incredible theological accuracy. Both in his worship and in his grief. He understood a theological framework. His understanding of God, his understanding of of who God was, his understanding of who he is in relationship to God, uh, it revealed his heart. And it showed for him, I'm going to miss my best friend. And I'm angry that he's been defiled. I'm not so angry that he's dead. I'm angry that he's been defiled. And I'm angry that the name of the Lord somehow is being mocked throughout all of Philistia. And I'm angry that because of the death of Saul and the death of all of those valiant men upon Gilboa, uh, that Israel has now fled. And that the very cities that should be filled with the Hebrews are filled with the Philistines. And there was a part of him that, that raged, as it were, over death. And over the glory of God. And it was as if David was saying, 
I am going to grieve, but I'm going to grieve in a way that does no defamation to my king, my true king. I'm going to grieve in a way that still points people back to the greatness of who he is. I wonder, even in my own grief over the years, if I have that thought of remembering that even in my tears, even in the renting of my clothing, even in those deep moments, that God is glorified. How you grieve, how you deal with loss exposes your heart. It tells you something about yourself. Listen, as it were. Listen to your heart. Listen to what's coming out. Be a student of those things. That's the second thing. Third, if the principle is that we are going to experience loss, and the deeper that we love, the more profound the loss, and that that loss reveals something about our heart, here's something I want to give you. Maybe it's a permission card. And the permission card is this. It's a proper to grieve. It is proper and it is right. Those of you who may come from a a different background may go, it is meet and right so to do. David grieved. And he was in good company. Because the true David, a number of years later, when Lazarus died, he went to the tomb and it says that he wept. I find that fascinating. He was one statement away from seeing Lazarus again, but yet he wept. Why? Why? Because he saw the invasion of evil into the world and its effect upon humanity. And he saw the invasion of evil within the world and the effect that it was going to have upon him. That it was costly. And it says that he wept in the midst of that. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who learned well from his father, and that is Solomon, learning from his dad David, wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, For everything in life there's a season. And there's a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. He later wrote in Ecclesiastes 7, It's better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. Just kind of hold it there in tension. You see, grief is a good thing. Grief exposes, as it were, what we're holding on to. And what Solomon was really saying there in Ecclesiastes 7 was this. Your grief, it's good. Because to lose a loved one and to suffer loss in this life, at the end of the day, what it should teach us is this life isn't all there is. There's something beyond the sun. There's something beyond this life. And this life is filled with people who want to go turn the river green. They want to live in the house of mirth. They want to medicate. They want to get drunk. They want to oversex. They want to goo. They want to pile up all the toys that they can. At the end of the day, the guy with the most toys wins. That's happiness and that's life. And folks, I would rather, and it's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, it is better for you to enter into the house of mourning and the house of loss and gain a proper perspective on the world than to live your whole life in the house of mirth and never gain a reality. Mourning is a good thing, but we're to grieve, we're to deal with it. And that mourning has, as it were, two components. This grief that we have. There is an immediate emotional response and there is a more considered reflection. There's an immediate uh, response. It said that David, when he heard the news uh, there, 
What did he do? Oh, that's too bad. I lost Jonathan. Hmm. God's sovereign. He must have predestined this from the before the foundation of time. No. He ripped his clothes. He yelled. He wept. He called for a fast in all of Israel, in his camp. He said, we're going to grieve this man. He's my best friend. And I miss him. I'm going to miss his presence in my life. I'm going to miss his voice. I'm going to miss the fact that I have someone in my life who cared about me more than anything else. That this friend of mine was willing to look and to say, listen, David, I don't get a crown. You will. And I don't mind being second to you. Nobody does that. David had an emotional outburst and he grieved. Any of you who have lost someone you love, did you have an emotional outburst? That's it? Really? Anybody? I want you to hear me. That's okay. That's human. It's human to feel pain. It's human that when you look at your loved one who's dead, to weep and to cry. And to yell with sadness. But it's not okay to stay there forever. David moved from the emotional response, which is a part of our grieving, to a calculated response. Because in the lament, he said, I'm lamenting this lament. I'm writing this lament. And this lament that he wrote gives us a picture of how he was now able to engage the mind into the heart. He was able to sit and to think and to say words like this. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not to Gath. That didn't just come out. He thought about it and considered it. He considered his friend. He considered Saul. And he said, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. He said that about Saul. Saul. The guy who tried to pin him to a wall. Saul who made his life a living hell for all of those years. That Saul said his life was love. And in life and death they were not divided. What a beautiful picture of a father and son. The faithfulness of a son to the unfaithful father. Who died with his dad. Defending and honoring his father who happened to be his king. And David considered that. And he wrote it down. And then he moved. And he said, Daughters of Israel, weep. Clothe yourselves in this way. Because he clothed you in this way. Oh, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And I'm distressed for you, my brother. Some would say that doesn't carry the emotion of the outburst. I think it carries a profound emotion. How distressed I am for you. I am bereaved of you. At part of the root of the word bereavement is a ripping or cutting away of a limb. A part of you has been cut away. And so there's this beauty in grieving that is both the emotional outburst, and for some of you, you need to gain a little emotion. You need to gain a little of that. We could use some of that in life and even in church. I joke with you and say, hey, if I can get a mmm, that's about as good as it gets in Presbyterianism. Hey, 
The Lord loves you. God is good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. We could use a little emotion. For most of us, the only emotion we get is, at least for men, is anger. But it's getting that emotion, but not staying in the emotion. And it's moving to the other place of saying, I want to think through this. And David wanted to think through it so much that he said, I'm writing this down so that all of Israel and all of posterity, all of humanity from that moment on could see and understand how to lament, could understand how to grieve, could understand the beauty of it. And he would go back to it. He would go back to it and he would revisit it. And some of you are going, I don't want to go back to the pain. I don't want to go back there. God invites you back into the pain. He invites you back into the relationship to remind you again of how good it was. To remind you again of what you had. To remind you again of how good and deep the love was. That there is a grief and there is a lament. You see, along with our emotional grief, it should be a way for us to express that grief. One writer put it this way, the sorrows and the wounds God's people receive from their losses are not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional catharsis. It's not going to get better, but it'll get better over time. And that time is being honest with your pain, and that time is being honest with your grief. And part of the way, and we'll end here, part of the way that we take that, and we write it, and we consider it, and we put it down, and we reflect upon it, is we have a hope beyond the sorrow. We have a hope beyond the sorrow. If greater love leads to greater grief, how do we prepare our hearts for it? How do we prepare our hearts for the eventuality of loss? And that is to look beyond. It's to look through the life, to look through the relationship, to look through the pain and see a Savior. To see a God who says, I understand loss. I understand funerals. I understand coffins. I understand burials. I understand crosses. But I also understand a resurrection. I understand empty tombs. I understand covenant faithful love. I understand my power uh, to bring back the dead to life. And I understand this. That for Christians who love one another. That saying goodbye at death. Is like a father saying to a son when he heads off to school. I'll see you later. I'll see you soon. David understood that. When he wrote... And he said, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. David knew he was going to see Jonathan again. And that buoyed his hope. He had a hope that Paul would later write about and say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being slaughtered all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. And guess what? If I'm in Christ Jesus, and you're in Christ Jesus, and my loved ones are in Christ Jesus, guess who else I'm not separated from? You. Sorry about that. It may not be great news for you. But it gives us a hope. 
That yes, one day we'll get to see our beloved again. But that's not our greatest hope, is it? I look forward to heaven. I really do. Maybe as I turn 50 this year, I think about it more. (laughs) My dad died at 59, and so I think about it. Because to enter into the house of mourning is better than the house of mirth because it's made me consider some things. As much as I want to see my, my father again and hear his voice, which I've forgotten, I look forward to seeing my Savior. Of seeing Christ. And if I get dad thrown in, all the better. If I get to see grandma and granddad again or meet Billy Graham, awesome. Whitfield would be cool. Calvin, that would be kind of nice. Maybe David. We've got a lot of questions for Samson. <laughs> but the, the hope that I have is I get to see Christ again. And the beauty of that hope is if you have that same hope, we'll bump into one another. And I'll see you in a little while. I'll see you soon. David was saying to Jonathan, I'm going to miss you profoundly in the days that I have left, but I'll see you soon. If you don't have that hope, don't leave here today without it. Folks, there is no promise of tomorrow. There's the promise of now and of a Savior who is saying to you now, come to me. Come to me and let me be your life. So as I pray for you today, I pray that some of you would turn and find that life in him now and know that you have a security that goes beyond the grave. So let's go to him now and pray. In heaven, we come and we, we wrestle with our own hearts. For some of us, we're stuck. We're stuck years ago in the loss of a loved one. We're stuck even days ago in that loss. And we've lost sight of you. We need to be reminded of who you are. We need to be reminded of your goodness, of your glory. I pray that you would lift our heads. Thank you for being so close to those who mourn to the brokenhearted, that you capture our tears in your hands, that we're precious to you. Father, I pray that you'd lift our eyes and we'd see the hope of heaven and that we would grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And for others here today, I pray that you would show yourself to them today and that maybe today would be the day when they would say, Lord, I commit my life to you. I have pursued other lovers. I have tried to live on my own. I have guarded my heart and I've destroyed everything that is precious to me. And I'm going to be vulnerable for the very first time. And I'm going to love you more than anything else. And I pray that you would speak to them these words. I will never disappoint you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Nothing will separate you from me. For I love you. I died for you. I rose for you and I live for you and I will come back for you one day. So Father, I pray that many today would come to know that hope. And for the rest of us, we trust this, that you are sovereign over us, that you're forever faithful and that you are perfect in love. We trust your hand. Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. I just invite you to declare this with us.
the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in our God who is sovereign over us, faithful in every season. There's strength within the sorrow. There's strength within the sorrow. There's beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. He is working in our waiting. You are working in our waiting. Sanctifying us. Beyond our understanding, it's teaching us to trust. You're teaching us to trust. We believe this. Your plans are.